You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Election College, episode number 207. William Rufus Devane King. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks. But did it always? It's time for election college, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Jason, this guy, if you try to say his entire name, it is a mouthful. But he was one of our vice presidents, so therefore we're going to say it uh, at least one more time here. William Rufus Devane King. Interesting guy, for sure, and an interesting story, but of course, we'll get there. Yeah, eventually we'll get there. So how about that game? <laughs> oh, no. Sorry, that was lame. Yeah, um, William Rufus Devane King, you know, his parents could have just called him Bill King, and he would have done very good in elementary school, but they had to throw in the Rufus and the Devane. And he probably failed kindergarten. He was probably best known for... Jason, that was really sad. Why, yeah. why did you do that so early on in the episode? Because if you, you made... start with tragedy and at the end, uh-huh. triumph. Oh, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen this episode, though. Shoot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now that we've bummed everybody out before we've even talked about the guy. <laughs> you just talked about the vice president failing kindergarten. Come on. I'm sure it's happened. So, William Rufus Devane King was born in North Carolina, in uh, Sampson County, actually. And his parents were William King and Margaret Devane. And they were well off. They had a lot of money, and they had a lot of connections. And, you know, they're kind of like those people you see in all the movies where they have, this, uh, you know, a pretty big pretty big farm and have a, a nice big house, uh, colonial style but they wouldn't have called it colonial style back then because you know it was colonial (laughs) it was colonial so (laughs) yeah so like any good politician he became a lawyer and in 1806 he was admitted to the bar and we skipped over the whole thing that he went to unc chapel hill but yeah that's where he went so he begins practicing law in clinton north carolina and he is a freemason and he decides, hey, I'm in the bar. And is that what you say? I'm in the bar. I pass the bar. I'm part of the <laughs> bar. I think I, so. Yeah, sure. Uh, he had Esquire after his name. And he's like, I'm going to become a politician. So he runs for the North Carolina House of Commons. And he is elected. He serves there for a couple of years until 1809. And then he becomes the solicitor of Wilmington, North Carolina in 1810. Yeah, he goes on to get elected to Congress, and he is elected to the 12th Congress, to the 13th Congress, to the 14th Congress. Uh, He's actually there from 1811 to 1816. 
And it's kind of weird to, to say like the 12th Congress. I don't know. That just feels kind of. It's very young. Kind of crazy that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so he ends up then resigning from Congress and he's going to be uh, the sec- a secretary to William Pinckney. And uh, this is when Pinckney was out as the minister to Russia. Uh, He had gone to Naples on a special diplomatic um, mission. And basically, Pinckney is the guy who is kind of in charge of his, uh, I don't want to call it like an embassy, but something similar to that during that time. Yeah. I did not realize this, Ben. I feel like we're talking about Russia a lot with these vice presidents. What's up with that? And, you know, the Q, he went over to Russia as a young man. And my goodness, I didn't realize that America had so much to do with the Russians. Sounds like a conspiracy to me. Tale as old as time, really, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. Well, at least the 1800s. Or like the 1770s, but I digress. So he comes back to the United States because what do you do when you go to Russia? You come back to the United States. (laughs) And he moves west, young man, because that's what you did, right? And I've talked about that, right? That when growing up, I used to think that the East Coast was paved over, and that's the only reason people moved west. Now now that I've driven out west, I can understand why people kind of did. But yeah, he moved out west, which doesn't mean California, it means Alabama, and he purchases some land and it's known as King's Bend because, well, his last name was King. And this is located between Selma and Cahaba and that's on the Alabama River. So Alabama is not a state yet, but it's a newly formed territory because it was split off from Mississippi. And he and his family have one of the largest slaveholding estates in all the land. They had as many as 500 enslaved. Jason, what do you think would be different if you mentioned like going from east to west in the U.S.? How, how different do you think everything would have been if, you know, same people, same everything had settled on the west coast? How different would the east coast be now? Whoa, you just blew my mind. I don't know. It's weird to think Have you ever that. wondered why so many people settled in new york and boston and philly and not san diego like i'd totally be like okay i heard some really good things about this place see ya i i just weather weather's nice (laughs) yeah you didn't have air conditioning and you don't have snow plows i just don't get it i mean the pilgrims didn't we learn anything from the pilgrims move (laughs) So yeah, King and his family have, like Jason said, one of the largest estates, but also one of the largest slaveholding families. Uh, they had uh, over 500 slaves. Uh, so anyway, he gets to be a delegate to the convention that sets up the Alabama state government. Jason mentioned that they were a territory. Well, now they're trying to be a state. And when Alabama gets brought into the Union as the 22nd state in 1819... He gets elected by the state legislature as a Democratic Republican to go off to the United States Senate. So he is uh, trucking right along here in his political career. Yeah, it gets a little interesting when you think about the whole Senate thing, because 
you have different classes, like the three different classes of senators, and you need to go back and listen to our episode dealing with the Senate. So when your state becomes a state, (laughs) you get two senators, right? But Mm -hmm. both of them don't necessarily serve six-year terms. Like they might have one that serves a two-year term or a four-year term or a six-year term. So that does become relevant later on because he serves in the Senate in separate times. So does that make sense? Makes sense to me. Okay. Let's move on. (laughs) So he is elected uh, to the U.S. Senate, and he is a supporter of Andy Jack. For those of you who are not familiar with our podcast, Andrew Jackson. And if you know anything about the Jackson administration, he was a pretty polarizing figure. If you're a Democrat, then you love him. So he's there in the Senate supporting Jackson all the way until 1844 when he steps aside. Yeah, and during uh, March and April of 1824, he gets honored with the uh, esteemed privilege of having one single vote in the Democratic-Republican Party's caucus. Uh, People vote, one person votes for him to be the candidate for the office of vice president uh, there in 1824. Now, if you remember 1824, it's quite the crazy year, let alone throwing one more guy in there with one more vote, so... Hey, why not? Let's go ahead and vote for this guy that probably doesn't have a chance because it'll be fun. It's funny, Ben, because think about that. He got a single vote to be a party candidate, and that kind of gets lost in time because who knows who William Rufus King is, right? We don't talk about him every day, but that would totally be a part of my elevator speech. You know, if you're introducing somebody and you have 30 seconds (laughs) to say who you are, I'd be like, hey, I... Somebody voted for me to be president. I'm awesome. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I've bragged about much less that's happened in my life. So you can guarantee you can guarantee I would be touting that one out there pretty good. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, he, it doesn't stop with this. Ben, take it away. He serves as the president pro tempora of the United States Senate. We know how that works. Uh, hopefully you've listened to some other episodes where we've talked about the president pro temp. He does that during uh, the next three different reigns in Congress. I guess you could call them reigns. I don't know what you want to say. And, of course, he's also the chairman on a couple different committees. Uh, He serves on the public lands. He serves on the Commerce Committee. And uh, then he gets appointed as the minister to France. And he's over there for a couple years, or he's the minister for a couple years. And he immediately, when he gets back, he's like, all right, I guess I'm just going to pick up where I left off. I'm, um, I'm part of the Senate again. And... Also, um, this is because of a vacancy. Uh, Arthur P. Bagby had had resigned, and King gets back just in time to step into his shoes. So he takes over Bagby's seat in July of 1848, and then in December of 1852, he's like, hey, gang, I'm not feeling too well. I'm going to step aside. Oh, but guess what? A month earlier, I was elected vice president, so I might be back. And so (laughs) all through uh, his time in the Senate, he was very much against abolition. He 
was very much one of those guys that John Quincy Adams would not have gotten along with because he loved the gag rule against debate on anti-slavery petitions and so on. And he wanted slavery to continue to be the law of the land in the District of Columbia, which, of course, Congress is in charge of the laws there. He is all about making sure that abolitionists have no say in what happens with the southern states, including new territories and so on and so forth. So probably not a very... um, his policies wouldn't be very popular today, we'll put it that way. Yeah. So July 9th, 1850 rolls around. We've talked about that date before. President Zachary Taylor dies. Two days later, King uh, gets appointed as the president pro temp because Millard Fillmore ascends to the presidency and the vice presidency is vacant. So King is the first in the line of secession. That makes sense, right? We've talked about that in the past. Hopefully, uh, you've listened to some of those episodes. If you haven't, I'm sure you'll be able to figure it out pretty easily. He also is then, you know, still doing the the chairperson on some committees and and stuff like that. Even back in the day, they had a committee on pensions, and he was the chairman <laughs> of that committee. Uh, it's just kind of mind blowing that even back then they were like, "Yeah, we need to work out some pensions and stuff." So I don't know why that's surprising to me, but it is. Yeah, lots of bureaucracy even then. Yeah. So we mentioned 1851, December, he's sick, and he resigns from the Senate. Well, let's back up just a little bit, because the DNC, they meet in 1851, and they select Franklin Pierce to be president, and they say, hey, this William Rufus King, he should become the vice president. So what do you do when it's 1852 and you're sick? You go to Cuba because you want to get, <laughs> you want to feel better, right? Uh, it sounds like a good idea. And the climate was much more uh, friendly uh, to people who were not feeling very well. And uh, a political climate was just a little bit different back then. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. So he takes off in a boat and he goes to Cuba and he is still sick. He's like, Oh man, I am not going to make it to the inauguration. Crap. I'm sure that's what he said. Probably. So Congress gets together and they're like, well, we'll make a special provision so that if he wants to take the oath of office outside of the United States, he can do that. And he does in Matanzas, Cuba. And uh, that's on March 24th of 1853. So uh, that date may or may not be uh, very poignant. We'll, we'll get to the time period in between these things. So anyway, he, he wasn't able to take it on March 4th, which is when he was supposed to. So 20 days later in Cuba, he takes the oath of office and he's there and he tries to heal up a little bit. And he, you know, he's battling with tuberculosis and, uh, that's not a fun thing to have in the 1850s or any time for that matter, but especially in the 1850s because, yeah, the, there's not a huge success rate with tuberculosis. And uh, he ends up going back to Chestnut Hill eh, back in the U.S., back home, and he dies within just a couple of days. And uh, it's crazy that he was, you know, uh, voted in. He then had to resign his current post 
while anticipating a new post, a, a much bigger post, which he is then unable to take over at the right time. So he takes over a little later, and then before he can even actually exercise any duties, he dies. Um, yeah, what a whirlwind, and I'm sure that was a very confusing time for the people who would have had to work directly with him and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, so he uh, is known as just one of those other vice presidents from the 1800s who doesn't live to the full term. Lots of talk about William Rufus King, and I guess we would be remiss not to include the whole relationship thing with President James Buchanan. Of course, this was before James Buchanan was president. So the whole issue of his relationship with James Buchanan comes out of the fact that, well, they lived together for 13 years. And our buddy, Andy Jack, I don't know if he's our buddy. It's just that he's frightening. Andy Jack is. Uh, We call everybody our buddy, it seems like. That's true. Um, But, I mean, the whole slave owner thing. But I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Andy Jack calls Buchanan and King Miss Nancy and Aunt Fancy. And Aunt Fancy, that's just a nice way of saying that man. He's kind of effeminate. And Aaron Brown, uh, another politician, uh, referred to King as Buchanan's better half. And James Lowen described Buchanan and, and King as Siamese twins. So there's probably a relationship there. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows if there actually was. And if there was, it doesn't seem to have affected their working relationships or their ability to perform their jobs. Um, but it's, you know, if it's speculation, but it's like pretty well-founded speculation. So again, like Jason said, we would be pretty remiss in not getting into it, at least in that cursory glance there. So, so interestingly enough, he was interred uh, there at Chestnut Hill and there was some family discussion and some people wanted him to move closer to them. Of course, other people wanted him to be moved closer to them. And later they rebury him in Selma's live Oak cemetery. And, uh, there were, the city actually built a mausoleum out of marble, and uh, I saw a picture of it. It doesn't look like it's been kept up very well, which is pretty sad for a vice president's resting place, anyone's resting place, but especially a vice president's resting place, uh, to kind of be dilapidated. Yeah. Uh, a few years back, Ben, I don't know if you realize this, but I didn't. It seemed like it was faint in my memory, uh, but this was just a couple of years ago. King County... Uh, Washington, where Seattle uh-huh. is, uh, officials there renamed King County, King County, uh, because it was originally named after William Rufus King, but then they decided to honor Martin Luther King Jr. So King County became King County, and I would say that's apt, aptly so, you know, you had a sure. slave-owning person who was not that interested in civil rights <laughs> and uh, that being replaced by, well, somebody in our more recent history who has had such a big impact. Yeah. Makes sense to me. I don't remember that, but that's, that's interesting for sure. It seems like we're seeing more and more of that where, um, you know, you can't erase history, but you can maybe not honor certain parts of history and that's okay with me. 
Yeah, that's a topic probably for a different show, but for sure. Anyway, um, also, so speaking of civil rights, uh, Selma, Alabama, which played a huge role in the civil rights uh, movement in the 1960s, was actually named by William Rufus King. He was a co-founder of the town and he named it. Hey, Ben, uh, speaking of taking a stand, there's been a lot of you who have recently left ratings and reviews for the podcast, and we certainly appreciate, wow, um, I don't know how long it's been since we've gotten one that hasn't been five stars, so thank you very much. Please don't be the one who breaks the streak, but we recently received our 100th review. The distinction of the 100th review goes to one of our online friends, Justin Gentry. He said that Jason and Ben share the facts while having fun. Subscribe to the show to walk through history in a new and fresh way. Thank you, Justin. And you can check out his inspirational website, leavethegrindbehind.net. If you would like to leave us a rating and review, we would love to read it here on the podcast. And shoot, Ben. We love to share on social media, so True. where can people find us? They can go over and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You know the drill. You know how to search for people by now, right? It's Election College. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.